You know, sometimes growing up in a country like this, we take for granted the effect of Christianity and the fact that it, it really is a compassionate uh, religion, if you will, among other things. In fact, uh, I think if you go to other parts of the world or even go to other times in time past, you'd realize the callousness of a world without Christianity, the, the cruelty even of a world without Christianity. Paul's writing a letter. It's very uh, touching. He's writing a letter to a local church just like this one. And he's just oozing with this goodwill for God's people as he's writing this letter here. And he's getting sentimental. And we find here now the soft spot in the heart of a sentimental saint. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're in a series in 1 Thessalonians. We've entitled it, Hang in There, Hang in There. And what we find here is a exhortation to a faithful church. It's the Apostle Paul exhorting a church that was very faithful. And, and he is uh, reflecting on the relationship that he has with them. And we've seen some things already up to this point. We're going to pick it up in verse number 5 today. Verse Thessalonians 2, verse 5. Paul says, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. We find Paul writing to this church here, and he's kind of getting mushy, to tell you the truth, and he's going to be gushing a little bit here. And we're going to see in this passage here what we call the, the soft spot of sentimental saints. The soft spot of sentimental saints. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we do thank you now for the Holy Word. We thank you now for the preservation of it. We thank you now for the heart, for the love that we find oozing from this passage. Help us now to glean it out and put it to practice as we talk about the soft spot of sentimental saints. We pray and ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes growing up in a country like this, we take for granted the effect of Christianity. And the fact that it, it really is a compassionate uh, religion, if you will, among other things. In fact, uh, I think if you go to other parts of the world or even go to other times in time past, you'd realize the callousness of a world without Christianity, the, the cruelty even of a world without Christianity. There was somebody by the name of Aristotle. You remember him, a, a Greek philosopher. Back when the laws of Greece were being forged, he made this quote. He said, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. Let there be a law that if a child is handicapped, they're put to death. They should not be allowed to live. Can you imagine a philosophy like that? And then there was Varro. He was a, a Roman scholar about 75 years before the birth of Christ. And as they were implementing the, the, the laws of farming in the land back in his days, he made this quote. 
Varro said, any aged slave who is past his work shall be thrown out and left to die, just as a broken farm implement is thrown onto the rubbish heap. Can you imagine such a comment? Any slave, any servant who's no longer uh, effective, we've, we've worked them to death, let's just starve them to death now and throw them out into the heap of rubbish there. That's a world, folks, without Christianity. I propose to you that you remove Christian ethics and you find a very cruel society. And I think we've, we find examples of that, even in World War II with the way the Japanese people uh, treated our POWs and even the way uh, Nazi Germany, which was a godless system at that time, uh, treated the Jewish people. Thank God for the compassion of Christianity. Thank you, God, for the effect that Christianity has upon this world and really that that compassion and that concern and that care, it comes with the turf. And Paul is writing about it here. Paul's writing a letter. It's very uh, touching. He's writing a letter to a local church just like this one. And he's just oozing with this goodwill for God's people as he's writing this letter here. He's getting the warm fuzzies. And he's getting sentimental. And we find here now the soft spot in the heart of a sentimental saint. Now, what's it mean to be sentimental? We get a little nostalgic sometimes. We might get sentimental or, or maybe uh, it, it, it could be described as being affectionate or, or maybe uh, sweet and, and touching. And Paul here is writing to a local church at Thessalonica and you can just feel the warmth. You can feel uh, the devotion. You can feel the care and the endearment. Now, here's Thessalonica. It was a church that was under pressure. It was a church under persecution. Uh, things were going rough there, and they were under affliction. And it was a, a fledgling congregation that Paul had to leave undeveloped because there was no time to bring them to maturity. Paul had gotten kind of pushed out of town, if you will, because of the persecution that set in there. And now he's thinking the devil has gotten in, and he's going to uproot this congregation and destroy it. But that's not taking place at all. There are many back in Thessalonica who are, are bad-mouthing Paul. And so he's writing what we're reading here, first of all, to say, no, that wasn't true, and that wasn't true, and that wasn't true. We find here what I call, first of all, the devout demeanor, and it's in Paul's case, and he's defending himself. And in verse 5, he says, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. What was going on here? Well, there were folks back in Thessalonica, the Jewish people, the unsaved, who were saying, well, that Paul, he's not the real deal. He just came here, but he's got an ulterior motive, and he's this, and he's that, and the other thing, and they're accusing him of all this stuff. They're slandering Paul here, and so what he's doing is, is he is saying, no, that's not true, but really, it, it was beyond Paul. They were trying to get to the young Christians there at Thessalonica. You need to understand something about salvation, folks. Salvation is life-changing. The moment your faith makes contact with the finished work of Jesus Christ and you're born again, as Christ put it, you're a new creature and old things are passed away and all things become new, and you're going to have some people that are excited for you, mainly the Christian people. You got what they've got now, and, and, and they're happy for you. But you know something? You're also going to find a lot of people that aren't too happy for you. Christ said in Matthew 10, a man's foes will even be those of his own household. And suddenly, maybe your family's not happy with you about this getting religion thing. And maybe your co-workers are looking at you kind of funny, and the boss is kind of rolling his eyes. And your friends and your old buddies are going, what in the world happened to him? And the townspeople are starting to, to wag their tongues about you. And there's going to be some folks that aren't too happy. 
you know, it's going to cost you something. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you your job. It might cost you the good life, as, as the world puts it here. And it had cost the folks at Thessalonica some things here. They had taken a stand, and, and, and it was costing them something. The Jews had attacked them by attacking Paul's reputation and accusing him of this and, and that. He would be a fake, and he would be a charlatan, and he'd be a huckster, and just a, a, a money grabber. And, 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 and what he was after was for personal gain. And all this stuff was being said back there at Thessalonica. And Timothy had brought word to Paul saying, boy, they're, they're dragging you through the mill here, Paul. And they're doing it to try and to destroy that young church there. So Paul's on the defense. And, and he's defending himself in verse 5 by saying, look, neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Paul says, I didn't flatter you. I didn't come to town and, and use flattery. When I think of flattery, I think of a, of a TV character back from the 60s when I was a little kid by the name of Eddie Haskell. How many of you remember Eddie Haskell? Doesn't he just look like an imp? And doesn't he just look like a menace? And, and you might remember Eddie Haskell. In fact, in our word, it's kind of, or, or, or our, our home, it was just kind of a, a, a proverb. But what an Eddie Haskell, you know? Oh, you're looking great today, Mr. Cleaver. And boy, my, aren't you beautiful, Mrs. Cleaver? Yes, Eddie. And, you know, everybody knew he was just pouring on the syrup. He was being a schmoozy. And he was using flattery. Watch out for flattery. Paul says, I was not a flatterer. God help us not to use flattery. There was an MC who was introducing a famous preacher, and, and it, was, it was in a, a particularly big town. And he said, we all know brother so-and-so, and, and uh, this, this MC was eager to impress uh, everybody with who this famous preacher was. And so he said, you know our preacher, he's known in, in churches throughout the world, throughout the whole world, and even in the regions beyond. And you go, regions beyond the world? Okay, is he famous on Mars or, you know, Jupiter or whatever that, you know? Sometimes we can overdo it. And the Jews had accused Paul of, of being a bootlicker, basically, and, and trying to use flattery to get the job done there. And here's Paul. He's, he's correcting that. He's defending himself. And not because he was worried about his reputation, but he was worried about this tripping up these young converts there in the church at Thessalonica. That's why back in verse 3, remember this, he said, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. He said, no ulterior motive. We didn't come and exhort you to, to gain something from you. And again, in verse 5, he says, for neither at any time used we flattering words. What they were doing is they were trying to assassinate Paul's character and, and trying to drag his name through the mud here. And Paul's saying here, no, 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 no. I'm valid. My gospel is valid. My ministry is valid, and I did not use flattery. You know, there's a lot of uh, televangelists today and, and religious preachers, if you will, who will sugarcoat it and tickle people's ears and, and say that God wants you to be wealthy and God wants you to be healthy and, and, and think positive. You're a winner, and there's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of sin. There's no mention of hell. There's no mention of anything that is negative. There's a lot of flattery going on today. There's a lot of flattery back in the days of the Bible even. When I think of flattery in the Bible, I think of a, of a, a smooth orator back in the book of Acts. When Paul was on trial before Felix, the Jews hired this guy by the name of Tertullus. 
And Tertullus came to the stand, and he's going to just butter up uh, Felix and tell him what a great guy he is. And, and by, by you, O most noble Felix, we've enjoyed quietness and prosperity and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And Paul's eyes were just rolling, going, really? You know, get serious here. But there's, there's a lot of flattery found in the Bible and a lot of verses warning us against flattery in the Bible. In Proverbs 29.5, the Bible says, A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. It's a setup. There's really self-interest here and self-gain and personal gain. And, and flattery is used to get it. A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. We read in Proverbs 26.28, a lion tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. A flattering mouth worketh ruin. We read over in the Psalms, Psalm 12 and verse 3, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. So there's warnings in the Bible against flattery, and that is because people are naturally egotistical, and you can stroke that, that ego with flattery. And there, are a lot of, there were a lot of religious scoundrels in the days of Paul that used flattery. And, and you got your Greek philosophers, you got your, 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 your Roman educators, you got your uh, Oriental cults and, and uh, the mysteries and the superstition and the magicians and the sorcerers and, and the astrologers and, and the, the crackpots and the cranks. And, and remember, Thessalonica was on a main road. So they had all this come into town and, and people were just so confused, spiritually speaking, and, and the false prophets were abounding just like they do today. Devil's never been original. And so here's the Jews, and they're trying to lump Paul in with that bunch, and they're making one accusation about him after another and attacking his integrity and his sincerity, and Paul answers the critics. He says, no, I didn't use flattery. I didn't do that. And then in verse number 5, he says, and as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. In other words, they're accusing Paul of doing what he does, traveling around and preaching this message to people to try and get their money. Paul is after their money. And Paul says, no, I'm not. He said, I didn't use, notice how he words it in verse 5, a cloak of covetousness, a, a disguise, a, this veil that was really hiding my covetousness, the fact that I was after your money, after your stuff. You know, the 10th commandment clearly just says, thou shalt not covet. Covetousness often goes undetected. Covetous can be a, a deadly sin. You know, I've been to Italy, but I've never been to, to Pompeii, but I really would like to get there someday. It's at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, and in 70 A.D., in 70 A.D., Mount Vesuvius erupted, and it buried Pompeii, and it killed 2,000 people. And they're doing recent archaeological excavation there, and, and they're finding the people basically frozen in the very position that they were as the fumes overtook them, and, and they collapsed to the ground, and the lava just, just settled over them, and it preserved them. They're preserved in all that ashes. And there was one woman they found, and, and it really, her position and everything about her told the story, an affluent woman, obviously, and, and a, an affair, an attractive woman, and and apparently as, as uh, the, the mountain began to make noise, you know, many were fleeing to the harbor and to safety to get out of there. And she would have started that way herself, but apparently she tarried and she grabbed some things. She had rings, she had trinkets, she had diamonds, she had brooches and necklaces and, and all these things. And she didn't get away far enough before she was overcome by the fumes and buried in the ashes. And they found her still clutching all those things she thought she had to have before she fled from Pompeii. 
Covetousness can be a, a very, very deadly thing. And it's no wonder that the Holy Spirit says in Colossians 3, 5, to, to mortify, that means put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and, notice this, covetousness, which is idolatry. No wonder it calls it idolatry. I mean, there are so many people, and they put stuff ahead of God. And in the case of this gal, it, it cost her her life. And so they're accusing Paul of being covetous, but actually Paul was anything but. Paul was able to say this at the end of his ministry. In Acts 20 and in verse 33, he said, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. He said, I, I didn't want any of that stuff. Let me just say this about Paul. I believe at one time he struggled with, with perhaps covetousness, and, and maybe, maybe we struggle with covetousness sometimes. But I think at this point, after salvation, Paul avoided it like the plague. It was the last thing he wanted to be guilty of, because as a Pharisee, he was covetous. The Pharisees in general were, were very covetous. And I think that the young Saul of Tarsus was much like the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? that comes sliding into Christ and saying, Good Master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ rattles off some things. Remember what that self-righteous young man said? Oh, I've always obeyed my parents. I've never killed. I've, I've never committed adultery. I, I've loved my neighbor as myself. And Christ said, Okay, go share your stuff with your neighbor. <gasps> That's when the wall went up. That's when he didn't want to get saved. That's when he departed sad because he had great riches. And he was covetous. What kept Paul, perhaps, from getting saved sooner than he did? Maybe he coveted a seat on the Sanhedrin. Maybe he, he coveted hobnobbing with the high priest. I don't know. But I do believe he was covetous before. But in verse number 5, he says, No, I didn't use a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. We see his devout demeanor. But secondly, we see this discreet deference, this discreet deference. In verse number 6, he goes on, he says, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Paul says, I deferred all that stuff. What's, what's deference mean? It means to deflect something. It means basically to yield or, or to condescend or to be humble and, and not want any of the accolades or any of the glory. He said, I, I didn't want any of that stuff. I, I, I believe I was humble. I think most of us here have heard of Booker T. Washington, that, that great black educator. You know, he was quite a, a scholar. And later on in life, he was more than a professor. He actually went on to become the head of the, the Tuskegee College in Alabama. He had just moved to town. He was walking down the street. And this affluent white lady uh, came up and, and, and said, uh, uh, Say there, you, uh, could I interest you in making a little money chopping wood? She asked the great Booker T. Washington to chop her wood. <laughs> she didn't know who he was. And you know what he said? Well, sure, I'd be happy to help you out. So he went out back, he started chopping wood, and, and the, the, little, the little servant girl inside recognized him, and she went to the, the lady of the home. She said, oh, my mistress, you, you don't know who that is. You just hired Booker T. Washington to chop your wood. Oh, she could have died a thousand deaths. She said, well, go out there and give him this money and, and tell him thanks, that's enough. And it bothered her all night, and the next morning she went to the college, and she went to his office, and they recognized each other immediately. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm so embarrassed and I'm so sorry. And he said, don't, don't apologize. He said, I'm always anxious to do a little manual labor and, and to help a friend. 
I thought that was so gracious of him. And they did become friends. And that affluent woman encouraged her friends to donate thousands of dollars to the college there. We, we call that deference. Deference. In verse number 6, Paul says, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others. Paul said, I didn't want any glory for what I was doing. Paul says over in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save or accept, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I was not seeking power. I was not seeking accolades. I wasn't seeking prestige and praise and position. None of that stuff. Neither of men, he said, sought we glory. You know, quite often that's an undetected sin. That, that business of seeking glory. That business of seeking a position. We think of a man who went down in infamy in the New Testament by the name of Diotrephes. The Bible says, who loveth to have the preeminence. You know, jockeying for preeminence perhaps is the oldest sin known to this world. We often talk about the original sin. We think of Adam and Eve, right? But there's a sin that goes back before Adam and Eve to Lucifer himself. Long before Diotrephes, there was a Lucifer who was saying, I will ascend into the the heights of heaven and I will put my throne above God and I will be like the Most High. Five eyes, by the way, you read there in Isaiah 14. Lucifer had an eye problem, didn't he? He he was king me. He wanted glory, God's glory, if you can imagine that. He wanted preeminence. He wanted position. He wanted power. He wanted control. He wanted authority. It's the original sin, folks. It's so often undetected. Paul said, none of that. None of that. Paul could have pulled his weight. You know why? Paul was an apostle. But we find in verse number 6, he says, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you. No accolades, no praise, no applause, no honor, no attention. I don't want to be somebody. Folks, let's all be nobodies. Don't be a wannabe. Don't be a wannabe. You know what I mean by that? Let's just be nobodies. Let's just be peons for Christ. Let's not seek any glory. Let's not seek any position or any power. Paul said, I didn't do that. I I wasn't trying to be a big shot. Imagine being an apostle. He does mention that, by the way. In verse 6, read it again. He says, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, as the apostles of Christ. Folks, we could talk about a lot of offices in the Bible of prophet and priest and king and, and other things even over in the New Testament. I don't know if it gets any higher than an apostle. An apostle. You know that when we see the New Jerusalem, which is that heavenly city, there's going to be some names on it making up the foundation. We read about it in Revelation 21:14. It says, The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles. Imagine those of us who are saved are going to see this throughout all eternity. Those names of those apostles. Did Thessalonica realize who they had in town here? It was an apostle. It wasn't just a king. It wasn't just the Caesar. It wasn't just some famous scholar or some poet or some philosopher or some rich guy. It was an apostle. They had the apostle Paul in town. And yet, Paul says in verse 6, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you. And then he goes on, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, 
as the apostles of Christ. That word burdensome there in the, in the Greek, it's a very interesting word. It speaks of a weight, like a bag of sand. I mean, that's weighty. And, and, and he said, we could have been weighty. We could have been a burden to you. You ever heard somebody say, oh, I don't want to be a burden to you. Paul was saying, we didn't want to be a burden to you. And I think the burden he's speaking of here is financial. He's talking about the fact we didn't take anything financially from you. Next time we'll see the fact that he worked with his own hands. He was a tent maker. Uh, He made his own living, as it were. And Paul had every right to be a burden to these folks. If you think about it, he had brought the best news possible to town. He had given to them the greatest gift possible. He had kept them out of hell for all eternity, no less. And so he could have been a burden to them, but he wasn't. He was speaking here, I think, of a financial burden. He says in another place, you know, they that, that labor the word should, uh, should receive the word and, and don't me- muzzle out the ox that treadeth out the corn and, and the labor is worthy of his hire and so on. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, he put it this way. They which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple. And, and Paul could have taken some, some, uh, some compensation from them. But he knew the scuttlebutt that would go on in, in Thessalonica. And he knew the Jews would accuse him of just being a, a hireling and a, a charlatan and all that. And he would rather starve than take any money and, and put the words and the arsenal into the hands of the enemy. So, so Paul here is he's refuting the naysayers, basically. We see the devout demeanor. We see the discreet deference. And then finally, we see the dear disciples. The dear disciples. Back in July of of, uh, 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg was fought, and things weren't going well for the South, and it was getting toward the end of the day, and and, uh, there were men lying wounded all over the place and being carted into various camps. There was a Union soldier who ended up in the Confederate camp. He was a bitter, hostile uh, young man. He hated the, the Confederacy. He hated the South. He was lying there wounded and bleeding. And all of a sudden, guess who he sees riding up on a horse next to him? Robert E. Lee. He recognized the general. Ooh, he hated the general. And he waited until the general got up close enough to where he could look into his eyes. And he raised his hand and he said, Hurrah for the Union! Robert E. Lee stopped his horse. The young man thought he was dead. <laughs> Robert E. Lee dismounted. He got over and he walked and he knelt beside the young man and, and the young man looked in his eyes and he saw such sorrow and sadness. He knew his life wasn't in jeopardy anymore. And Robert E. Lee just simply said, young man, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I pray you'd get better soon. And he got back up on his horse and he rode off and, and that young man said, if I live to be a thousand, I'll never forget the compassion in the eyes of that man. We call that gentleness. Gentleness. And Paul writes here about gentleness in verse 7. He says, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Even as a nurse, the, the word nourisher there, and it's obviously talking about a mother, nourishes or nurses her children. That's the epitome of gentleness. You know, as we think of Paul, we think of somebody who was strong, somebody who was determined, somebody who was uh, zealous and, and, and assertive, and fearless, but gentle? Gentle? Well, Paul wants to illustrate the relationship that he had with the people there at Thessalonica. And he makes this comparison as a nursing mother or as a spiritual parent or as family. He, he said, we, we were so close, so close. 
And Paul said, I didn't exploit you. I don't exploit my converts. He said, he said just the opposite. I love you. I, you have my heart. You know, a couple months ago, I was out in San Francisco, and as I was in the harbor and looking back at the skyline of the city, I thought of an old song. And some crooner sung it when I was just a kid. I left my heart in San Francisco. Paul, as he's writing this epistle, no doubt is saying, I left my heart in Thessalonica. I left my heart there. You folks have my heart. And in verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to impart it unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Notice in verse number 8, he says, We imparted unto you the gospel of God. The gospel of God. You find the gospel all over the New Testament, referred to in different ways. It's called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6, because it brings peace into the life of people. It's called the gospel of Christ, because uh, He's the one who did the redemptive work. And in 2 Corinthians 10, it's the gospel of Christ. We find it referred to this way in 1 Timothy 1.11. Paul mentions the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. But here in verse number 8, Paul doesn't give it any fancy adjectives. He just calls it the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Why did he use that expression? Well, think about this motley crew of people living there in, in Thessalonica, Greeks and, and Romans and, and, and folks that would crowd into these, these heathen temples and serve these lustful gods and these vicious gods, these, these false deities who were scheming and vengeful and malicious. And they didn't have a clue who the, the one true creator God was. So when Paul got to town, he just introduced them to God, and then he gave them the gospel of God, the gospel of God, plain and, and simple. And in verse number 8, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Notice that expression at the beginning of verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you. Affectionately desirous of you. We desired you with great affection. If you do a, a study in the Greek language of that expression, affectionately desirous, you actually find it speaking of, of the longing of a parent for a child that has passed away. Some of you probably can relate to that. Affectionately desirous of you, like a child that has passed away. It's a, a strong, strong term of affection. You know that affection and, and love and, and care are powerful, powerful things. You know, we've often said that people really don't care about what we know until they know that we care. Isn't that the truth? I've observed many times. I, I've given out uh, tracts. I've, I've given out Bible studies. I've given the whole seven steps to God home Bible course to people. And in some cases, they've done it, and they've come back and say, oh, thanks, that was nice. It, it, it doesn't have that, that effect on them like you think. And sometimes it's not possible to sit down with them and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. But I have noticed that when I can meet with them and I can engage them in that Bible study and they can see my heart and see that I care and see the time I give to them and the answering of their questions, it's powerful. There's something awfully powerful about that. Tracks are fine and, and we can blanket doors and, and, you know, in cities and all that, but there is nothing like engaging somebody one-on-one. -on -one. It's like you can just uh, hear the chain snapping. It is a powerful thing. 
And, and Paul's talking about that here because God has, I think, wired us this way and designed us to have one-on-one relationships. And he's talking to them about the relationship that we had there in Thessalonica. Now, it's a church's responsibility to reach our town. I understand that. But individually, personally, one-on-one, there's something so, so much more powerful about that when we give them the gospel. So Paul mentions in verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to impart it unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. He's saying, we would have died for you. We would have died for you. Isn't that what good parents are willing to do? Mom, Dad, would you die for your kids? I would. And Paul felt that way about these folks. Many years ago, there was a couple of uh, rangers that uh, were walking through a forest after a flash fire had, had come through. And it was a real quick fire. The, the grass was real dry, so the fire just spread through real quick. It left all the trees there and everything else in that forest. But they were walking through, kind of surveying the damage, and all of a sudden they, they stumbled upon this bird face down in the ground with the wings spread taut. Well, that's, that's odd. That bird should have just flown off when it saw the fire coming. They started to walk away, and then they noticed one of the wings kind of slightly moving. They thought, what? And so one of them kicked the bird over, and underneath found three little chicklets under there. And they were just peeping, and obviously that was the mother. And though the mother could have flown off and, 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 and left the chicklets behind, she didn't. She died in order to preserve the life of her young. Paul's saying, I'd have done that for you folks. I, I wasn't willing to just impart unto you the, the gospel of God, but our own souls. Why? He says, because you are dear unto us. Paul is speaking of L-O-V-E, love, love. Peter talked about it in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8. He said, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Above all things, you say, Pastor, I've been witnessing. I've been, I've been sharing my faith. That's wonderful. But there's something that, that eclipses that. Above that, have charity. You say, Pastor, I've been attending church faithfully, and I'm, praise God, we, we should for our own benefit. But there's something that trumps church attendance. It's love. You say, well, I've been giving. Amen. Good. God loveth a cheerful giver. But there's something that even takes precedent over that and it's love. You say, I've been praying. I've been praying, Pastor. Thank God for that. Keep praying. But at the top of the list, you don't find prayer. What does it say behind me? Above all things, have fervent charity. Now, I'm not minimizing on those other things. We ought to have those other things. But I think if we have a fervent charity, the other things will fall in place, don't you? I I think if we get this principle here, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And the Apostle Peter there is actually quoting the Old Testament. Proverbs ten twelve said first that hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sin. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sin. Is there anything in our lives that we're currently striving about, stewing about, uh, critical about, uh, maybe jealous over or or, or we have some evil thinking over, God help us to replace it with charity, with love. We read in Proverbs 17, verse 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. That means the closest of friends. You know, the Bible says to overcome evil with good. 
And the Bible says that if we cover a transgression, we seek love. Now, how do we love? How do we become sentimental saints? Obviously, we pray for love. Do you pray for love every day? I do. I, I think it should top the list. God, give me some love today. Help me to love. Help me to have the Spirit of Christ. So pray for love. Secondly, if we're going to love the way we ought to love, we've got to be givers, right? We have to be a giver of self. We have to die to self. We have to live unselfishly. Our Savior gives us a principle in the Gospels when he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And by that he means whatever you give to, whatever you invest in, whatever you pour yourself into, it could be your children, it could be your spouse, it could be the work of the Lord, it could be some carnal thing. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If we are investing in others, we will love them. Now, the last days are characterized as being a a time when people will be lovers of their own selves. And there will be this careless attitude, there will be this coldness, there will be this, this lack of concern in the last days. I read a story this last week about a, a locksmith and a, a realtor who went into this, this house together in Milwaukee a few years ago. And to their shock, they found this man dead. And in fact, the decomposed body of, of David Carter was sitting there. And, and they went, whoa, what happened here? And they, they left and they investigated. And they found out that David Carter hadn't been heard from for four years. He was a nice guy. He was, he was humorous and he was smart and, and uh, generous. And he had told his co-workers that he was quitting and, and he was moving. But instead he went home and he locked the door and he took his life. And the question really to me is, how could he be so disconnected from the community and, and others that nobody found him for four years? These are cold days. These are callous days. We live in a disconnected world. And, and, and any Christian really could take an interest in other people. It doesn't cost us a thing, does it? We could take an interest in each other. That's how we cultivate love. That's how we foster love. May I encourage you to come early to church maybe and, you know, fellowship. Maybe stay behind afterwards and, and talk to folks. Ask them questions about themselves. Take an interest in them. Pray for them. Do them favors. Go out of your way. Get in a ministry with them. Be a co-labor with them. We, we can't disconnect and expect to have love. No man is an island. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. See that you love one another with a pure heart. Notice the word fervently. That keeps popping up. Fervently. Intensely. Fervently. We won't love without an investment. And so seek to make others happy. There's not a Sunday morning that goes by where I don't tell my, my family on the way and be a blessing to somebody today. You're here to encourage somebody. Be a, be a blessing to somebody. Make somebody happy. We read in Galatians 5 and verse 13, brethren, by love serve one another. By love serve one another. Let's determine to love. And oh, by the way, just know you're going to be hurt. Sometimes love does hurt. Sometimes it's not always reciprocating, but that's okay. You get to enjoy the warm fuzzies, okay? And the joy that comes with love. So let's back up. By way of review, some Jews had told the Gentiles in Thessalonica that Paul was just a scoundrel. He had ulterior motives. Here's Paul. He hears this is going on back there in in Thessalonica. He's now passed into Athens and even, I think, moved on to, to Corinth. 
And he's so concerned about those Christians back in Thessalonica that he sends his, his young understudy, Timothy, back there to Thessalonica and says, check on them, see how they're doing. And Timothy gets there. Boy, he goes, wow, these guys have taken off. This is impressive. And so he, he brings word back to Paul. Paul is pacing the floor like a, a new dad waiting for the birth of his firstborn. And, and Timothy comes in and, and says, Paul, everything's okay. They're doing great. And Paul is just so happy that he sits down and he takes his ink quill and, and his pen in hand and, and he starts to write these things. And he shares with them his heart and the fact that he has this soft spot, that he is a sentimental saint. We're going to be talking more as we study this wonderful epistle about that soft spot of sentimental saints. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.